gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Hey, everybody. Welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another studcast with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. And this is the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the stud. Now, please welcome the originator of the studcast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the super studcast. We step back into the ring and back into time with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. And Ron, just the other day, I was perusing your website, which I like to do on occasion, tmstud.com. There's a lot to see and a lot to learn. As a matter of fact, every studcast you've ever released is right there. And I noticed the fan comments, and you've got a ton of fan comments on there, and you've added some new ones, it looks like. Yeah, I, I call those uh, the stud snips. And, uh, yeah, I get all these uh, comments on social media, Twitter, uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram, a lot of different places. and it's a uh, and I like to uh, send them to, to the company that uh, handles my website in Houston, Texas. And I'd like to say hello to those people out there in Houston. Uh, thank you all very much. You do a great job. And, uh, yeah, so we change them out, uh, try to change them out every month. And uh, But there's so many comments coming in now. I probably change them about every other week. I'll, I'll throw new comments in there. And uh, some of those comments are pretty amazing. And from some of the countries around the world, it's pretty crazy. That, uh, that uh, people that are listening. So, you know, just another thing, as you say, there's quite a bit of stuff on that website. It can keep you there for a little while. <laughs> Indeed, no doubt. And you can get, you can get that Tennessee stud t-shirt as well. All right, Ryan, great to have you back. So where are we riding today? Oh, we're going today. Uh, we're going to begin obviously with the day's training and we're returning to last week's stud cast. Obviously this is part two. We're putting on those owner hats again, and we're finishing that training. And we're going to be talking about how difficult it was as an owner to make risky decisions that could sink your company or possibly make it more successful. You know, uh, as owner of any company, this is this is the thing that uh, they encounter on on quite a few occasions. Uh, then we're going to break down the largest crowd and show Howie Park Amphitheater history. It's going to take place on Friday night, August 13th, 1976. We're going to talk about that fantastic card, the whole card. The great TV that was done there six days before that, that promotes the card, the results of that card. And we'll talk about the attendance, the record attendance in that park for that night. 
The break today is about something totally different from the usual breaks. We're going to hear a recent book review about my novel, Brutus. I'm really proud of what's happening with Brutus, and uh, he's off to a good start. And I'm really, uh, really looking forward to it. Uh, then also, going to end the program, obviously, with the learning tree question that uh, fits the stud cast. And a lady asked, whose idea was it for Don Carson to wear a black glove? Interesting. Okay. So it sounds like another great ride. I know you've got lightning cinched up. Don't laugh at the name of my horse, Fluffy Girl. So where are we headed today, stud? <laughs> you got to get a better horse, man. I can tell you I'm, that. I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> or a better name. I, I don't know if your horse looks as bad as that name sounds, but you know, my, you might have to change that, you know. So, I'll work on it. <laughs> so we're going to begin this stud cast, you know, where we ended, like I said, last week in today's training. And uh, this is going to be the first time we've ever had a part two in one of these today trainings. And last week, we began this one by putting the owner's hat on for the very first time. And uh, we talked about the crowds in Knoxville and how much they had grown over the summer of 1976. And the decision that I made, actually, after this crowd that we're going to talk about in this studcast, I made the decision that I needed to make the permanent move to the Coliseum. It was time for that to happen. And, uh, you know, wasn't obviously as simple as it sounds. Uh, we talked a little bit about it last week. So uh, then he, this, it was a very delicate maneuver. I guess that's a good way of putting it. And it just highlights the very difficult decisions that owners of not just a wrestling company, but owners of any company have to make. And, uh, and it, this is going to give listeners an idea of how difficult it is to be the owner of any company. You know, not necessarily just a wrestling company. But owning any company is a difficult thing. So uh, pull that owner's hat down, all of you out there, real tight, because the rest of this ride isn't going to be easy today. Oh, so, okay. so I explained last week, uh, there was much more involved in the move from Chilhai Park than just visiting the manager of the Coliseum in Knoxville and telling him what dates I wanted for the wrestling there in 1977. You know, it sounds like that'd be an easy deal, but uh, there's a lot of thoughts got to go into that. Uh, the building was doing very well, obviously, and it was very busy building. And there weren't very many weekend dates available, period, much less a number of weekend dates. So when the NWA office informed me in May of 1976 that Southeastern was going to get a world title match on Sunday afternoon, October 10th, my first call, obviously, was going to be the Coliseum manager. I didn't want to have this event inside in Chilhai's little arena that could only hold maybe 4,000 people. So I asked um, the Coliseum manager, obviously, about the availability of that Sunday afternoon, October 10th, 1976. Now, this is five months in advance. And I asked him, too, about as many possible Fridays as I might be able to get after uh, September 10th, uh, which uh, was... Uh, the, the date that a uh, Friday night, I wanted to get some Fridays and I wanted to use those Fridays to build up for this world championship match. I didn't want to just go straight from Chihai Park right into the Coliseum. I wanted to have a proper build up in the Coliseum to draw an even bigger crowd for the world title match. And, but they were so full four months ahead of time when I called them that I couldn't even get but two of those potential three Fridays. They were already booked and gone. So, so it just give you an idea how difficult it's going to be to get a lot of dates in the Coliseum. So after the event that, that we're discussing today, I had my next conversation with them. In other words, on Friday night, August 13th, I saw a monster crowd 
And I said, we got to go to the Coliseum. And so uh, I made an appointment with the Coliseum manager for later in the week. And I was going to be asking him about how many weeks out of the 52 weeks in 1977 could I get in that building? And every day that passed before I asked that question, there's going to be fewer dates because they were booking that building daily. So, you know, the, some of those dates are going to be gone if I sit on my rear end. I had to get started. So I explained last week the repercussions that this Coliseum move could have on Southeastern wrestling, uh, especially if my leaving Chihuahua Park had been against their wishes. It might have caused the park to shut the door on me if I went to the Coliseum and I failed. They might not let me back in there. So I also highlighted another dilemma. If I got 52 dates in the Coliseum in 77, uh, but failed to draw the big crowds that I was expecting to, and lost money on these crowds that I was in the Coliseum for, and my idea didn't work, the part would be the only place that would be large enough for me to go back to. Mm. So I was jeopardizing my company by trying to get into the Coliseum full time. So it was very tricky, and it was a risky deliberation, and it took place between three parties. It wasn't just me involved here. It took some time. It took patience. It took persistence. And it took a lot of trust between the Chihuahua Park management, the Coliseum management, and obviously me with Southeastern Wrestling. So I began this process on Monday, August 9th, three days after the largest crowd in Southeastern history that happened three days earlier in Chihuahua Park. I went to the park management first, obviously. Uh, they were the home of wrestling in Knoxville prior to my buying John Kazan out. That's where he had had his wrestling for many, many years. 52 weeks a year, and I felt like I had an obligation to talk to them about what my idea was. They understood, obviously, that their indoor building, it was no longer nearly large enough to accommodate the fans we were drawing at this point. That was the only place they could offer me. When it grew colder, from the months of October to March up there in the Tennessee mountains, it got cold. And they also admitted that when it rained in the summer and I couldn't use the amphitheater because it was raining, that that small building, the backup building, I called it, was just totally inadequate for me. It would not hold the fans that wanted to come see the matches. So they promised to not close the door on me if I failed at the Coliseum. And uh, they kind of opened the door for me to go to the Coliseum and, and, and see how many dates I could get. So the next stop, obviously, is the Coliseum. Now, they had a manager there. His name was Fred McCallum. He had been the manager of the Knoxville Coliseum since it was built in 1961. Uh, he knew my grandfather, and he knew my father. When you're in the building business and you manage these arenas, you know who's in the arenas around the country. You know that the wrestling is a big part of a lot of arenas' uh, bookings every year. And uh, my grandfather had been in the renting buildings since the 1930s, and my dad since the 1950s. So, you know, uh, they, they had a little bit of reputation of their own, and Fred McCallum knew who they were. So uh, he thanked me for the 12 times that I had run in the Coliseum since I started Southeastern Wrestling. They had never had any wrestling matches in that Coliseum. So, and he, he you know, he, he praised me for my foresight, and he was really impressed by the growth of my company. And he told me he watched the great TV show each week. And he called it the great TV show. He said, gosh, it's the best wrestling show I've ever seen. Wow, and, wow. He, and he knew, uh, he said, I know why you're having success. He says, I watch it myself. And he goes, it's great. It's a heck of a wrestling show, you know. 
And he was up front with me about the lack of Friday's availability right up front. He says, I'm sorry, Ron, but, you know, Friday, Saturday nights here are very, very popular. And a lot of them are gone and a lot of them had already been taken. So he knew that I'd run several shows on Sunday afternoon. In 1975, I ran six. In 1976, I ran shows. Several of those were on Sunday afternoons. He thought it was a great idea to take those Sundays if you couldn't get a Friday or a Saturday. So, you know, and it was a lot easier to get. A lot more Sundays were going to be available. So we took his master ledger, which, you know, most of these Coliseum guys kept a big old book. And it had the names of the people who were in there, the events that they were going to be having. It had every date. It had who was there, who was who was booked in there. And most of the time, they didn't have any changes in that schedule. So he brought out his master ledger, and we sat down there. We, he had great faith that what I'd done in less than two years, uh, and you know, he, he kind of committed himself to allowing me to schedule as many of these dates that I wanted to as we looked through this big book to see what was available. I left there that day with 31 dates in 1977 booked for the Knoxville Coliseum for Southeastern Wrestling. That was up dramatically from a total of 12 shows over the two years preceding that. We're going to have 31 in one year. And I also made a close personal friend uh, when I left there, too. And, and I could see that he was going to help me to get into arenas across the South in the future. I didn't know I had a future where I was going to be running wrestling companies further South and in a lot of other places in the South. And this guy is going to become a personal friend and a lot of help to get me in the front door of these big buildings. The 31 events made Southeastern the largest tenant in the Coliseum's history, uh, but it wasn't the end. I returned to Coachella Ohio Park. I booked the rest of the dates that I needed in 1977 in Chihuahua Park. So basically by August of 1976, I had every date I was going to run in 1977 done, 31 in the Coliseum and the rest of them in Chihuahua Park. When I couldn't use the amphitheater, I was going to be able to use the indoor building as the backup. So my relationship with the Coliseum was going to grow. In 1978, the Coliseum events are going to increase from 31 to 39 weeks. And the Chihuahua Park events obviously going to fall down to 13. Uh, wrestling is going to become the second largest drawing spectator sport in Knoxville, in 1977, 1978, and 1979. It would have been by far the number one spectator sport had it not been for Knoxville being the home of the University of Tennessee and that football program there. <laughs> so here we go. You yeah. know, I mean, I, I know wrestling is getting very popular, but I don't know, man. Tennessee football in Knoxville yeah. is, uh, you know, it's hard to beat. So, no doubt. So had there obviously had been a, a football stadium there with 100,000 seats. And, uh, you know, so we're not going to easily become the largest drawing sport in the city, that's for sure. So my confidence was growing quickly as a young man and a business owner uh, after arranging this switch of buildings and not having a problem with it. Luckily, it worked out well for all the entities, for the park, for the Coliseum, and for me. I'd basically walked a tightrope, and I managed not to fall. <laughs> so I felt real good about it. That's pretty cool. I want to ask you, though, how did you fare against Friday night football, which I'm sure is a pretty big deal in that part of Tennessee as well? How'd you do on Friday nights? Well, we did on Friday nights. We did well. We didn't have any problem. It would have been a lot more difficult if I'd run on Saturdays, uh, heads yeah, up with sure. the football games. 
Yeah. You know, but Friday night, actually what happens and with uh, when you're in a football town and like like uh, Knoxville is for the University of Tennessee, you got thousands of fans <laughs> that come into that town yeah. and they stay there on Friday, you know, well, and they're looking for something to do. And, so, and, and I, that's exactly what I was going to say. There was there were plenty of choices, especially in the fall. There was the football games on Saturday, uh, typically at uh, Neyland Stadium. And then, of course, you had wrestling available on Sunday afternoon. Yeah, which was great. So everybody stayed over. You know, they let, they didn't leave as soon as the football game. They spent yeah. the night there Saturday night. Some of them would hang around at 3 o'clock Sunday afternoon to see the wrestling. Right. So either was- in the fall, if I had a Friday night, they came on. They'd come in and see my getting wrestling on Friday. If I was running on Sunday afternoon, they would stay over and see it on Sunday afternoon. So I was picking up some extra audience from football fans, obviously. What time was the TV show on Saturday, and did it compete with football? Sometimes, occasionally, you know, uh, but uh, not that often. Uh, Tennessee usually had those uh, night games. Yeah, They wanted to have those night games whenever they could, and uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon was perfect. Uh, People sitting around the hotel waiting on the game, and uh, wow, they flip on the set, and hey, look at this. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and that's kind of what happened too, because my show was really good. Our yeah. show was cooking. We had all the, the the chroma key and the Vitafont and and the instant replay, and people were going, "Wow, look at this wrestling show! What, what in the heck are they doing here?" So, uh, you know, it worked out good. Worked out very good. It sounds like you were learning a lot in your early years about how to handle business. How did you handle the largest amphitheater wrestling crowd? And chill Howie Park history on August 13th, 1976. <laughs> well, I handled it very happily. I'll tell you that day. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I was like, uh, wow, I, I, w- I was really, really having a good time. Uh, but even that night brought challenges. I mean, you know, the, this a big, huge facility, this amphitheater, they had not seen many sellouts and they never saw one like this one. Th- this one just really really just busted the numbers dramatically. So so I'm going to explain exactly what I did in preparation for this record crowd. But first, I want to give listeners the card that brought all those fans into that amphitheater that night. So the opening match on the 13th of August, 1976, was George McCrary, who was his fourth week in Southeastern. And he was wrestling against the, the hot Canadian heel, Louis Tillette. In less than a year, Three more extremely talented Canadians are going to arrive in Southeastern. Uh, Louis Tillette is out of Montreal, and he's not going to be the only Canadian uh, that's going to come to Southeastern and make a name for themselves. And some of them arrive with big names. Well, those three I'm talking about specifically is Ronnie Garvin, the Mongolian Stomper, and Joe LaDuke. All of those boys have yet to make their first appearance in Southeastern. But right on the horizon, they're going to all be there by 77. Second match was the first of four main events that night. Southeastern tag titles were on the line. Jimmy Golden and Mike Stallings were challenging the champions, Kurt and Carl Von Steiger. This next main event was another championship match. It was the Mid-American Championship with number one hillbilly Ron Wright against the champion, the great Mephisto. The third main event. You know, the fourth match of the night, another championship, Southeastern Championship at stake, the Gladiator, Dick Steinborn, versus Tor Tanaka, managed by General Homer Odell. And the last match came with a very special stipulation. In the cage match, the Friday before, 
I took Don Carson's glove off and I kept it. So I left the, the arena the Friday before with Don Carson's glove. And in this match of, on this night, on this Friday the 13th, it's going to be called a coal miners pole match. And I was going to allow Southeastern Wrestling to put Carson's glove on the top of a 20-foot pole that's attached to the, one of the ring posts. And the first one of us to get to the top of that pole and get that glove can use it on the other one. So Don Carson and I are going head-to-head in the black glove battle. It was a great card, obviously, three championships uh, and, a, and a pole match for Carson's black glove. It was in early August. It was before school got back into session. It had perfect weather, and it was a perfect night for a record crowd, an all-time record crowd in that, wow. in that facility. So but before we get the results of this one, let's talk about the great TV show of August 7th uh, that promoted this record crowd six nights later. Uh, we had another great example of the, our chroma key, using that chroma key to open up the television programs. Les and I opened this show together on the set, and the background was, again, a beautiful shot. I had removed Carson's glove at the end of the cage match, and he had retreated to the dressing room. Uh, it showed me in the middle of the ring alone. It's a still shot. Uh, I had his black glove on my right hand, and I had it raised in the air. There was a roar going on in that amphitheater when all that was going down. But that's the sh- shot that's behind us as we open the program. The studio fans, they're, they're smart people. They're becoming aware of how these openings are each week. They're watching the monitors now rather than watching the actual guys on the set. And they see what the picture is that uh, is going to be coming up. So they were ready to explode when Les finished his close-up uh, after he described the program of the day. He did the lineup on the TV for the day. Then as the cameras backed away from that tight shot on Les, and everyone got to see that full screen shot of that set behind us. There I was wearing Don Carson's black glove, not only on the huge screen behind us, but I had the glove on on the set as well. The studio went crazy. Uh, I'm sure viewers at home who were not at the matches and who didn't know what had happened the night before, they had to be pretty darn surprised too. What Ron Fuller doing with Don Carson's glove? So <laughs> after all the months, that Carson had tormented fans and wrestlers with his peanut butter. Somebody else was finally wearing it. <laughs> so, it was like a jubilant studio crowd the entire day. I mean, they, that started them off with a roar, and they, they pretty well stuck with it all day long. Along with the thousands of people that were cheering in the background as they started to show the actual part of this cage match. So it showed my winning. And how I won and that Carson attacked me after the cage door was open and I was ready to leave. And it showed me returning to the cage, getting back in there with him. And for the first time ever, taking his glove off, I put it on my hand and I figured out real quick how to load it. I could tell, well, boy, then look at this. This is pretty cool. I loaded her up and I turned around and Carson was halfway to the dressing room. He was like, <laughs> you ain't going to hit me with that thing. <laughs> So the fans were fans were really into this video. So after the video is finished, Les and I discussed what's going to what I'm going to do with this club. So first I took it off and and I loaded it right there in front of the cameras and the studio and everybody at home. I then took it and held it up in the air about two feet above the desk and I dropped it. And boy, it landed on that desk with a whoom, a thud. You could tell, wow, there's something in that glove. 
other than a glove. So, so right. I said to Les, you know, uh, this pretty much proof, Les, that, that, you know, there's something is truly inside this glove. And it's been in it since Don Carson arrived here in Southeastern. I said, I'm not the type of wrestler that needs to take these shortcuts like Don Carson did and uh, that I could keep this glove and I could wear this myself now if I wanted to, because I'm the sole owner of it. I got it. It's my glove, by golly. You know, but I said, I'm not that type of man either. So I told Les that I had offered Southeastern an idea for a unique match. It would give Carson the opportunity to win his glove back and Southeastern to promote something really different. Uh, Southeastern, you know, had accepted the offer, and so had Don Carson. So Les said that both Southeastern and Carson had accepted the match. Uh, you know, he said, Ron, they both accepted it. Uh, the Southeastern officials loved the idea. Don Carson wants to get his glove back, and that's the only way it's going to happen. So Les said that uh, he explained that the next Friday night in Knoxville, they were going to put this loaded glove, and he had the glove now in his hand, on top of a 20-foot high pole. Uh, then he was going to let Carson and me fight for it. Whichever one of us got it, either Carson or, or me, they retrieved it. It was going to be free to use it on the other man any way they wanted to. So let's continue by saying, as proof of Southeastern's exception of the acceptance of the match, he said, I asked them today if they would do something for me. He said, I asked the, the cameras, you know, I said, I asked them to put this 20-foot pole, and they brought the 20-foot pole. They showed it. He had already brought it in. He said, I asked them to take this 20-foot high pole that you're going to put this glove on, attach it to the ring post here in the studio. Then he, he said, and the glove is sitting on the top of it. And the cameras couldn't even see the top of the pole. It was up above the lights, the ring lights. It sat over the ring. So he said, see if you can get a shot of it. So the cameras on the floor, they got underneath the, the pole as best they could, and they got a shot, and that that uh, glove is sitting there probably six inches from the ceiling of the entire building. <laughs> it was a pretty spectacular shot. And so let's finish by saying the glove was going to remain there till the show was over today, you know, so the people could just uh, grasp the idea of what this match is going to be about the following Friday night. Studio crowd loved the whole concept. It was really taking advantage of the old adage of pictures worth a thousand words. So, yeah. you know, the impressive shots from the floor level cameras up into almost the ceiling of the studio where you could hardly see the glove were just magnificent. I mean, they were amazing. The match was now sold, man. Uh, it was done. People could realize how it's going to look, what it's going to be about. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons they draw this back record crowd. This was just the beginning of this show. But I wasn't through yet with this show either. This this show had everything in it. I went directly from the set. As soon as I finished this, I got right into the ring. I got a win right there in front of a very appreciative studio audience. Don Carson followed my match up with an interview, the first interview of the show. He actually cried real tears, which <laughs> about and he and he and as he was doing it, he he cried about. He says, you know, I feel like I'm half a man without my peanut butter, you know, and he said, and how much damage this was going to be done to my poor hand now that uh, during this week I had to wrestle without my glove all week. I have to have that glove to protect my hand. And how cruel Southeastern and Ron Fuller were disabling me, taking a disabled man like me and and, and put me such a through such a crazy thing as this pole match, you know, and the. Uh, 
Oh, the studio was just, they were hysterical. The crowd was just laughing. They were just loving it. And Carson got mad at the end, by God, and he promised, you know, uh, that Ron Fuller's going to get hurt real bad Friday night, you know, in this normal Don Carson. I wish we had that audio. That was a great interview. So Ron Wright, he fires up the studio, man. He hits the ring for he gets himself a win in the second match. And he goes straight to the set after the win, and he splits the interview time with the great Mephisto, who's in the second studio. We're going to do one minute with Ron Wright, cut away to Studio B with the great Mephisto. Right in his one minute promises, obviously, the good old Tennessee dog whooping. And I'm going to whoop that Arab so bad they won't know he what country he's from. And then he, was, he promised he's going to come away with one of the few belts he'd never won. The Mid-American Championship, he's going to win the title. And uh, Mephisto, he did his normal interview, man. I mean, he chilled that studio crowd. First thing he did is he asked, where's Bob Armstrong? Mm. Bob Armstrong had disappeared since he'd gotten burned. And then he made some remarks at the end of it. He said, I really miss the smell of someone's flesh burning. Oh, man. You know? (laughs) Wow, and uh, that quieted the crowd. I mean, now they're like back to thinking about, geez, what happened to Bob Armstrong, and where is Bob Armstrong? So next up is the personality profile in this show, and it was the first interview ever in East Tennessee history from the NWA champion Terry Funk. First interview ever from Terry Funk, and now he's the NWA champion. This video came from a studio somewhere. I have a feeling it was probably done in St. Louis. Funk sends the interview in. Uh, Les does the profile by himself, and he cuts away to Funk's comment. Funk ranted about the Southeastern wrestling picking me for the title shot for October 10th, 1976, which was just two months away. He complained horribly that I was not qualified to wrestle for the world championship. He said, even though, you know, and Les said, but wait a minute, he holds a win over you and your brother. And, uh, and he says he stole those wins. Mm-hmm. He stole that win over me, and he certainly <laughs> stole the one over Junior. You know, he he just uh, really made a big deal out of that I wasn't worthy of this shot. Then he had convinced. He told Les, he says, uh, I've talked to the NWA about uh, how unqualified this opponent is. And he says, I've convinced them they'd agreed with me that if Ron Fuller loses any match between now and Sunday, October 10th, he loses the right to wrestle me for the world championship. So this meant basically that I'm just one loss away from being eliminated from a title shot. So when the interview's over, Les is there by himself, and he kind of stands up for me. And he's, he says, you know, I very much disagree with Terry Funk's idea, and especially the NWA backing him, that uh, if Ron Fuller lost one match in the next two months, that he should lose that shot at the title. So... uh he really did a great job. Les did a good job. Uh, Funk did his normal great job. Uh, he didn't get to do it from his ranch, but uh, this was still really impressive interview for fans that had never seen Terry Funk. Yeah. So next match, Gladiator got another TV win. It's his third live match, and he won this one with a sleeper hole. He went to the set, and he split the next interview with his opponent the following Friday night which is going to be Tor Tanaka, obviously managed by General Homer Odell. That was a great interview from both guys. Uh, Steinborn does super interviews. Homer's just saying, you know, I'm not wrestling this 
this mask guy. I don't like wrestling mask people at all. So the last match was a tag with Jimmy Golden and Mike Stallings against Tony Peters and Don Lambert. Uh, Golden got him, got the win with a big old drop kick, as usual, off the top rope. And uh, Golden and Stallings uh, split the last interview of the program. They're wrestling the Von Steigers for the Southeastern Tag Championship. The other team was in Studio B, which made great programming, great interviews. You got to see both sides of the story in each interview. And both teams talked about their title match the following Friday night. And Golden and Stallings just kept emphasizing the fact that when they lost the title three weeks earlier, they'd never gotten a chance to win it back, and this was going to be their shot. So we're at the close of the program, and Les is thanking everybody for joining us. And all of a sudden, <laughs> as you would imagine, knowing Don Carson, that glove's still up there on top pole, and uh, the, clo- the show is closing out, and Les is there to sit, and the people in the studio are just about to get up to leave the studio. And there's only maybe a minute on the clock uh, before the show is over. And all of a sudden, here comes Don Carson running out of the dressing room and climbs up in the ring and he goes up, climbs up the pole to get his glove. <laughs> He's going <laughs> to steal his glove in the middle of the show. So I see it. I go out and get him. I go and drag him off the pole and I slam him off the top rope. And less, we're running out of time. And, and the studio crowd, obviously, it went, went crazy, man. Like, wow, look at this, man. Ron, Ron, Ron Fuller is going to beat the hell out of Don Carson before they even get to next Friday. And Les is saying, man, I want to stay with this. Can we stay with this? Uh, stay with this. And then, boom, the time runs out and it went to black. Well, but, of course. <laughs> yeah. So imagine that. And, uh, you know, so the studio audience was so loud, you couldn't hear Les close the show. I mean, when I watched the show back, you couldn't hear anything Les was saying. The crowd was just going nuts. So that was one of the wildest endings for a TV in Southeastern history. Talk about leave them wanting for more. You had them screaming for more, which that's a point that I think we could uh, hold for later. This is a great place for a break. And as promised, we're going to hear the review, the first review of Ron's new novel. It is called Brutus. And let's do that. And our next author, who I am really excited about because he has been such a wonderful support to us, his name is Ron Fuller Welch, the Tennessee stud, iconic wrestler, has a book called Brutus. And it's one of those books that you cannot put down. But before we start the review, why don't we talk a little bit about who this iconic wrestler Ron Fuller is? Now, for some of you on the West Coast, we weren't. Roy Shire was obviously the big one in San Francisco with big-time wrestling. I mean, you'd get 19,000 in the Cow Palace with some of the greats of all time wrestling there. But in the South, one of the big territories was the Tennessee area. Ron Fuller's family has oh, almost two dozen of them have controlled these territories for over three decades, and they did for a very long time. They're very instrumental in getting some of the biggest names in wrestling in the ring, and they were very well-known. Ron wrestled all throughout the world to some of the greatest wrestlers of all time. He was the Tennessee stud. He was normally a bad guy, very great character. In real life, he's a super nice guy. He's a great guy, but I think when you look at him, he's owned... Uh, minor league NHL teams. He was one of the top ADT companies in North America. He knows how to run a business. He knows what he's doing, and he's very smart. 
And when I first asked, just like you, you're probably thinking, a ah, wrestler doing a book is probably about wrestling. But no, this is a novel, and it's a very interesting one. And yeah. I am shocked and pleasantly surprised that Ron is such a great writer. He absolutely is. This is such a well-written book. Brutus by Ron Fuller Welch. I have to say I was surprised as well. Can't put it down. Very, very good writing. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you overall, what did you think of this book? I really enjoyed it. As we have talked off air, it's a very unique book. It's a book yes. that I can't put my finger on anything else like it. We were kind of thinking, as I was telling you, maybe a Jaws type movie that really everyone saw Jaws. It just blew us away at what a different, unique story that was. This kind of does the same thing. It's about biggest man-eating lion in recorded history and three people trapping him and bringing him back to the Smoky Mountain Zoo in Knoxville, Tennessee, the Tennessee stud. That's why it comes in. And then it goes through the lion is let out by one of the sympathizers, Jeb, of the lion, and you get into this huge mess, different types of situations where you feel for the three people, then you feel for the lion, then you feel for Jeb. It's amazing. And it's a book. We're not going to give away everything. No. But we, this is a thrilling ride. It was hard to put this book down with all of the great things that, that you have in this story. It's very unique. And so you asked me, how did you like it? What it, what was it about? That. I I really liked it. And again, the premise and the story was very well done. Absolutely. I think that, like we both have said, we love his writing. We love the way he writes the book, the way he puts the characters together. Again, you're on the edge of your seat. You really can't believe how it's almost like go around the corner. What's going to be next? What are you going to see next? And I think, like you said, Jaws is probably the perfect comparison. Now, what did you think of the way he wrote the characters and even the way he wrote Brutus, the way he wrote this lion? What did you think of that? I think the thing that really shocked me, because let's face it, everybody and their mother is putting out thousands and thousands of new authors. And some, I would say, really, to be honest, about 80% of books are not that good anymore. And about 10% are, are good and 10% are like by icons like Stephen King. But in this book, the character development was excellent. And also it was real. To me, it reminded me of wrestling. And we had people like Mick Foley. I love Mick Foley. And shout out to Mick. We love Mad- to death. That's what I think was fun about Mick is that you really felt in tune with his kids' books or whatever. You just felt good about the characters and you understood them. In this realm, you see yourself kind of in it. You see where you may like the lion even or feel sorry for the lion. There's other times you'd like to kill the lion. And I think you see a lot of different emotions, a lot of different thoughts, and a lot of different flaws in the characters as well as some things that you may admire so it's like a wrestling match where at times you don't know who's the heel who's the face who's goodbye who's bad guy and i think that to me was the good thing i related to all of the characters at different times of the book even the lion i related to because there's a few people Absolutely. I'd like I'd like to do some things too, uh, <laughs> but uh, but but yeah, uh, no, but, yeah that's what I really loved about it. And 
and I think with Ron, he has a talent for writing, and it shows in this book. Absolutely. And it does. It takes you on a roller coaster ride. And I agree. At different times, you feel for the different characters, including the lion. And it's kind of surprising that that's the journey it takes you on. We're used to, as book reviewers, especially with a lot of our authors, a lot of the romance, a lot of that time travel and that type. This was different. And I loved that about it. Like this was something new for me. And again, I think it's a testament to Ron's talent, to his writing ability, and his imagination. Two thumbs up for Brutus, B-R-U-T-U-S. I was surprised. I think everyone that talked to me said, oh my God, a a dumb wrestler that thinks he's going to be a writer, but this is not it. Ron is a super bright guy, super smart. He knows what he's doing. He's very he's been very successful in different avenues of life and obviously wrestling, but this book is a real deal. It's not one of those books that drags on and you have to it's one of those books that overnight you could read this and you could feel good about it and then you just kind of got to step away and think what the heck just happened? This is crazy. So yeah. Florence and I adored this book, five, five star. Stars. So get this on Amazon <laughs> or wherever books are sold. And you know, a lot of you, especially with Ron, this is his first novel. It, we would really appreciate it. If you read this book, got it, give a review. Please review yeah. books on Amazon because that and on Goodreads, wherever the sites that you get these books on or wherever you put reviews, please, 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 because this gives other people the thoughts that you have on the book. And you may not think it's a five. You may think it's a nine out of 10 or eight out of 10 or whatever. But the thing that you need to do is you need to share that with others. So then it gets a fire going and people get excited about the book. There's a lot of books on here that if they had more reviews, I think they would get more buys because people would know more about it. Think of it as Yelp. And so please review this book, give it the care that it deserves because Ron worked two years on this book, very hard. Loved it. Keep writing, Ron. Another five-star book. We loved it. Brutus is now available. Get it at tnstud.com or amazon.com for the book or Kindle. The only place you get an autographed copy is tnstud.com. Again, tnstud.com and click on Stud Store. So, Ron, we are now at Friday, August 13th, 1976. And we're about to be a part of the largest crowd in Chilhowee Park Amphitheater history. Let's hear about that. Okay, let's start with the preparations. Uh, and then we'll talk about the results of the card. I spent about a week before that Friday night at Chilhowee Park trying to get prepared for what I really anticipated was going to be a record crowd. It was 6,000 the week before, and I felt like this one is going to be even larger. Uh, I had my assistant. Uh, I had a person that, that represented me. I didn't go around and let people know uh, that I was the owner of Southeastern. I had an assistant that took care of a lot of things for me. He hired two extra ticket sellers for this event. He hired two extra ticket takers. He added some ringside seats, and he, he, he got a few more ushers there. We filled out that big area which the ringside people sat on with ringside, uh, maxed it out. Uh, We had almost uh, 800 ringside seats out there on the concrete level where the ring was. I also believe that the overall experience 
a fan gets when he goes to any sports event is extremely important. Uh, and it's not just the event itself. It's much more than the event that's important. Uh, record crowds really mean only one thing for sure. And that fact is there's going to be some people there that's never been there. I mean, obviously, that's how you get record crowds. So you want to make a great impression on new fans. It's a critical thing. I found the same thing to be important in my hockey business later on. So the last thing you want as a promoter or an owner is to have lines everywhere, lines waiting to get in, lines waiting to get concessions, lines waiting to use the bathroom. I mean, that's a bad experience, and you don't want that to happen to people that it's their first time there. So this experience really starts with when they drive their car into the parking lot. And how easy is it to park their car? And uh, how easy is it for them to get a ticket? And how easy is it then for them to get into the arena? How easy is it going to be to buy a, a, a Coke or to, to get some popcorn or whatever it may be? So everything is important when you've got one of these big crowds that you're expecting including extra police, which I hired extra police just anticipating if we had a riot or no matter what, if you've got a big crowd, you want to have more police. You want to have more security. Convenience is critical for a new fan. So still with all this preparation, it was still an overwhelming night, but it was a wonderful one. From the time I arrived at the amphitheater, which was about six o'clock, two and a half hours before bell time, and I wasn't going to get out of there until after midnight. The Chile Park comprised a huge area, both sides of one of the main streets in Knoxville. The name of the street was Magnolia Boulevard. The park was large enough to accommodate one of the biggest fairs in the South each September. So it's a huge area. It has not only indoor facilities, it has this giant outside amphitheater. The amphitheater is set on a hill. It's on one side of that major street. So back in those days, there wasn't any ticket master. <laughs> you couldn't get your tickets in advance. Every ticket that's going to be sold that night has got to be sold individually. Uh, so the major ticket booth sat in front of the amphitheater. One booth had two windows in it. That booth was used for ringside seats, had two salespeople in it. Another much larger booth had four windows for general admission. That's for the people that are going to be sitting in the big, huge, giant grandstand. The crowd lined up on the left side of those booths. And every ticket window had, obviously, a salesperson. And every window was full to buy tickets that night. First time that had ever happened. The babyface dressing room was at the far end of a small building. There was a little building there that separated the ticket booths from the entrance into the amphitheater. The heels dressing room was on one end of that building. And the building's about 100 feet long and about 30 feet wide. My dressing room's at the far end of the building where the fans are going to be lining up to buy tickets. The box office didn't open until about 6.30, two hours before bell time. When I arrived there at 6, there was already a few people standing there waiting to buy tickets. Now, we're two and a half hours before start time. By the time the box office opened at 6.30, 30 minutes later, that line had backed up about 100 feet down the side of the hill toward the big, large park area uh, where they had big events. Uh, I was also famous <laughs> with other wrestlers for Pace in the dressing room, and uh, I always did it, no matter what building we were in, no matter what the event was. This night, though, I didn't pace much, but I thoroughly enjoyed myself. For the first time since wrestling in that amphitheater and being in that dressing room, I discovered this small little window was high up on the very far wall of the dressing room. 
and I pulled a bench over there and stood up on it, and I could actually see the fans arriving down below in the park and, uh, and then lining up to buy tickets, and nobody could see me. It was a nice little deal. I got to spend that night instead of pacing, uh, watching something that was truly awesome to watch. By 7 o'clock, that ticket line had expanded down the hill for about 50 yards. By 7.30, the general mission line, there were two lines there. They were two lines wide and 50 yards long. By 8 o'clock, there were four deep, four wide, and 100 yards long. The line just kept getting longer. It didn't make any difference how fast it was moving. It could not seem to get all these people in the building. Uh, in the outside building, <laughs> no building in the big amphitheater. And when the bell rang at 8.30, the lines were still way down the hill. So that time of year, it didn't really get dark until about 9 o'clock. So for every stud cast, I always pick a photo. That has something to do with each of the stud cast. If it's uh, Bob Armstrong and he's showing up, uh, I use a Bob Armstrong picture. So uh, the photo for this one is that amphitheater on that night of August the 13th, 1976. And if you see this photo or fans see it, and if they go to the website, obviously it's on the website. And I believe if you purchase it at other places and you, you get your website, wherever you get it, Spotify, iTunes, whatever it is, they sometimes show these same photographs. So bear in mind, if you see this photo, that it's taken before dark, and there's probably still a 1,000 people that aren't in the facility at this point. In the photo, the grandstand, the monster grandstand is already full, and uh, there's still a 1,000 people probably coming to get in uh, after this is over. And in the photo, you see some grassy areas above the top of the grandstand, down both sides of the grandstand. You don't see it because the grandstand's so wide, the camera shot can't pick up uh, the entire size of the grandstand. But there's these big grassy areas so that if the grandstand were to fill up, people were going to end up sitting in the grass. Then uh, by the time everybody got into the arena, is the first time I got a look at it. And when I actually went out of the dressing room and stepped out and saw it, it, it was unbelievable. It was like a sea of humanity. I'd never seen a crowd like that in one area because... Uh, basically, 5,000 of those people are sitting in one spot, and uh, the other 1,000 are sitting on the same level where the ring is. Maybe more than 5,000 on, on the hillside. I could not tell. This park was built back into the mountain. They blew, took dynamite, blew off the front of a mountain, and they built this amphitheater back into the mountain. It's a beautiful structure. So people covered every square inch of that entire amphitheater. There was no place you could even see any grass by 9 o'clock. So the matches held up at 8.45, try to get all the people in the amphitheater. And, uh, and there's just something about these massive crowds that inspire wrestlers, man. <laughs> you know, and then you can bet when, you, when you've got a big, huge sellout that your matches are going to be fantastic. And they were that night. The inspiration was there for every match that night. I mean, guys were just lit up like the crowd. So George McCrary and Louis Tillette, they opened up the card. They had a 20-minute time limit match. It was a heck of a match. The last five minutes, most of the people in that facility were on their feet. This is just the opening match. Uh, the second match was the Von Steigers for the Southeastern Tag Championships, and they made their entrance with their belts over their shoulders and a smug look on their faces. I mean, the boys had, uh, they had attitude. 
you know, and it was only the second match, but the crowd was already electric. I mean, the crowd really, they gave them a heck of a dang uh, inter- uh, an introduction to the amphitheater that night. And Jimmy Golden and Mike Stallings, who's wrestling them, they just busted out of the dressing room, man. And they went around the, the uh, ringside front row, just shaking hands with the fans and reaching over into the second row. I mean, they had that place on fire and they hadn't even gotten in the ring yet. Match was outstanding, and it ended with an intentional disqualification of the Von Steigers, and they did it to keep from losing their belts. They did it on purpose. They didn't want to get beat. And uh, the four of these guys are going to come back the following Friday night, but they're going to be in a really unusual situation. They're going to be in a best three out of five falls for the championship. So going to be an even longer match the following week. The next championship match of the night was the Mid-American title of the great Mephisto at State. And he came to the ring first. He had on his flowing silk robes and his turban. He was now over at this point, and he was met with booze, man. I mean, that echoed off that mountainside. It, it was pretty amazing what the sound was that night, throughout the night. The biggest reaction so far that night was next as the perennial favorite, man, the old hometown boy, Ron Wright, made his entrance into the amphitheater. The fans were ready for this match, and so was old Ron. <laughs> Ron Wright, I mean, he, he came determined, and he really took it to Mephisto. Uh, most of the match, he, he was on top, but the, it ended in fire, just like Mephisto promised, the same way it had with Bob Armstrong two weeks earlier. And the shock of the flame, man, which again was probably three feet across, and it wrapped around Ron's right head, it silenced. I mean, the crowd went hushed, just like they had uh, two weeks earlier with Armstrong. And the referee obviously disqualified Mephisto. But he left the ring with a big smile on his face. He didn't care. Uh, they were all over. The medics came right into the ring. The people there, the amphitheater, first aid people got in the ring. Uh, everybody was trying to take care of poor Ron. And uh, he looked horrible. He, that fire really did a job on him. They took him back to the dressing room. The, the fact, actually, the amphitheater, first aid people took him back to the dressing room and the People that had just seen Armstrong get burned, uh, they got just as quiet as they did when Armstrong got burned. They got that same way that night. And then after a little bit, they kind of got to thinking about it. And boy, they got mad again like they did uh, on the Armstrong night. Uh, Ron Wright wasn't going to be back for two months. He was not. He was going to be out for two months after this. So there's a short intermission at this point. We try to calm the fans down. And then the bell rang for the Southeastern title match between Tanaka managed by Homer and the Masked Gladiator. And this was a heck of a match. Uh, Dick Steinborn is a tremendous wrestler. And boy, he gave wrestling lesson to Tanaka. He really, really, he took Tanaka down and rode him. And he did things that Tanaka, Tanaka never had done to him before. But then uh, finally Homer figured out that he could draw the referee's attention. And every time he did, uh, Tanaka would start using his karate on Steinborn. And it gave him really a big advantage. So, uh, you know, once this uh, tactic worked for Homer, he just kept using it. And Tanaka kept working on on Steinborn. And he had him basically beat. But he picked him up for one slam too many. And when he did, Steinborn dropped down behind Tanaka. And he put that sleeper hold on Tanaka from behind. That place went crazy. I mean, that it was unbelievable. Everybody in the amphitheater stood up. 
you know, and Tanaka started sliding. I mean, a gladiator really had it hooked in on him, and Tanaka started going down, and he reached and grabbed the referee, and he jerked his head in there, and, and the referee was Mac. And uh, Mac and, uh, and Steinborn's head collided, and all of a sudden, Mac went down, and Steinborn went down, and uh, about that time, Homer ran around to where the announcer was, he was the guy holding the Southeastern Championship belt. He grabbed the belt away from him. He jumped on the apron. There's no referee up. Tanaka uh, gets Gladiator in a full Nelson, and Homer motions to bring him over here. And then Homer's about ready to give him the coup de gras, man. I mean, he's, he's going to plaster poor old Gladiator. And Gladiator ducked. And Homer crowned the champion, by gosh, with his own belt. And when he did, he accidentally split Tanaka's forehead wide open. <laughs> so Tanaka went down, and the gladiator fell on top of him, and the referee counted out a bloody Tanaka. And uh, boy, it was like an explosion went off in there, man. It was the last thing the fans expected. The unbeatable big man had finally lost. <laughs> it was the beginning of the end for Tanaka and Homer's relationship. This thing starts a real row between them that's going to last a few weeks. And eventually, Tanaka's going to want a little bit of Homer's butt himself. So during this, the main intermission of the night, they brought out the 20-foot pole. They tied it to one of the ring posts. They put Don Carson's glove on the top of it. The fans began to get ready for something special. And when the bell rang for the match, they exploded. It was like the, the match was over. I mean, it was a big pop just getting the bell. And Carson went to the ring first. And boy, I mean, they, they didn't feel good about it. Fans hated Don Carson. Uh, they could hear him. And I bet you the citizens of Chattanooga could hear him, the booze 100 miles away. <laughs> I mean, he was greeted by a wild reception. When I came out, I got a tremendous reception. It gave me the goosebumps right at the beginning of the match. I didn't have to wait to somewhere in the middle of this match. I got goosebumps just coming to the ring. I mean, it was one of those nights when you know it's something spectacular is going to happen. So, so it was a long match for something like this, a pole match like that. Uh, you know, most unusual match doesn't last but five, six, eight minutes. Uh, we both made uh, moves a lot of times to try to climb that pole to get the gloves. But each time, you know, we got pulled back down. And uh, each time we went to get that glove, there was a roar from the crowd. Uh, Carson didn't have his peanut butter, but he wasn't no dummy. He brought his own peanut butter in another form, and he hit me with something that cut me. And I started bleeding after about 15 minutes. So he went for the glove. He started going for the glove pretty regularly after that point, but each time he went for it, I managed somehow to get hold of him and drag him back down the pole. This match was extremely exciting. Fans were just really, really into it. And the longer it went, the louder they got. It was like, wow, they didn't know how this was going to end. So I'm bleeding pretty bad. Carson ain't bleeding at all. He finally grabs me and he pile drives me. And then it looked as though it was finally going to be over. And he started up the pole and uh, he did get the glove. And when he got the glove, he slid back down the pole. But when he slid down the pole... He stood on the top rope, but he had his back to the ring, and, and I was laying down in the ring, and I saw him up there on the top, and he was trying to put his glove on, holding on to the pole, trying to keep his balance, and it gave me a chance to kind of crawled up the ropes behind him, and when he turned around to jump off onto the ring, I reached up and I slammed him off the top rope. 
And boy, the crowd popped. I crawled over. I got to my feet. Uh, I pulled him up. I stuck his head between my legs, and I piled drive him this time. And then I began to take the glove off of his hand. You couldn't hear yourself thinking there. It was pandemonium. The crowd was unbelievable. I put the glove on, and he was getting to his feet about the same time. Once I put it on, I knew how to load it. So I loaded her up, and uh, when he turned around to find me, the peanut butter found him. <laughs> I knocked his ass gone. <laughs> so I was exhausted. I fell on top of him. I couldn't stand up myself anymore. The ref counted him out. They raised my hand, and uh, neither of us got up. Uh, I just left late on him. I, I couldn't get up. And Jimmy Golden, the Gladiator, Mike Stalin, George McCray, uh, finally four of them came down to the ring, and they got me on my feet. They raised my hand. I still had the black glove on it. And it was just a crazy scene. They helped me back to the dressing room. Fans mobbed us, the four, five of us, I guess it's five at this point. And uh, it had just been a tremendous night for fans, for wrestlers, for me, and mostly for Southeastern wrestling. That's incredible. And when you walk to the ring, Don Carson especially, and, and I've seen this before, but for you also, I mean, to you feel it as you're walking to the ring and you know this is going to be an incredible, well, you know you better put on an incredible match for a crowd like this. But you can get a reaction from the crowd so easily. And Don Carson was one of those who I just think was just exceptional. He could let out almost a Ric Flair, whoo, and the crowd would just go crazy and do it back. But you, the, the chill just had to be up your spine as you were headed to the ring that night. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, and it'd been that way for everybody just about, you know, that when you see that type of crowd uh, right. yeah. and you get yeah. that type of reaction, uh, you don't hear, uh, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people can make a heck of a lot of noise. Yeah. And yeah. It inspired, like I said, it inspired everybody that went to that ring that night. And it just, it, and what it did is, the people that night got to see something that was just absolutely amazing, man. Uh, a tremendous thing. That's an incredible night. I bet there were some listeners out there now that were there that night. What kind of actual crowd, what kind of numbers did you do for that night, Ron? Oh, Jace, we, we did uh, 6,500 fans. Wow. And that facility was probably made to hold uh 5,000. So we but, had but that was a record for that night, right? Oh yeah. It was an yeah. all time record for that, yeah. for that yeah. facility, not yeah. just for wrestling, but for anything in that facility, because when they did concerts, the stage was up there and you had the band up there. Yeah. So, you know, we had 800 people on a concrete surface that the band was using. So yeah. we, we had an advantage. So not only did we fill the entire huge grandstand, we filled the grassy areas around it. And we had 800 people on the actual concrete surface where the ring was. I bet so, you put a lot of money in your pocket that night. Well, it, it the, the gross house was about $18,000. I don't have the figure of what that is in today's money, but I got a feeling that it, it, was, it was a phenomenal amount of money in today's yeah. money. The average payoff for the guys on the card that night was $400. $400 was big-time money, too, back in that day uh, as compared to what it is today. Huge, huge, huge payoffs, uh, a huge, huge night. As Don Carson's boss, did you interact with him after you two had just had a match of a lifetime in front of an incredible crowd? 
did you interact with him at any point in private after that? And, and were, were you high-fiving each other going, man, that was one hell of a, an event? Or was there anything like that? No. You know, there are times when you had an opportunity and you could go to the other dressing room. But I was always really careful about that in my territory. I never wanted to be seen in a, in a heel dressing room or have a heel be seen in a babyface dressing room. Right. Uh, I didn't go see him. I don't think I talked to him about it until the following day uh, when he came into TV and we were able to get off in the back and away from everybody and there was nobody in the studio. We probably talked about it then. It's the first time we got a chance to talk about it. Uh, but it's kind of a bonding thing in a way. It's crazy, yeah. crazy, you know. I mean, when you have a match like that and you have it in front of that kind of a crowd, it's something that you never forget. And like you say, I think there's probably fans that came that night that listened to this studcast and go, I was there. I saw this. I bet, I bet they would remember. Did you or he feel like this was probably one of the biggest wrestling matches in an either of your history at that point? Yeah, yeah, I think it probably was. You know, I'd been in Florida and I'd, I'd been in Australia. And, uh, I'd been a lot of places. It was the biggest wrestling crowd that I had wrestled in front of. Uh, it even bigger than in Miami or or any place, uh, Tampa, no place wow. did I ever see that type of crowd. Uh, so, yeah, at this point, now we're we're not there yet. Uh, we're we're going to have some bigger ones, by golly. We'll have them in the yes. Coliseum. But, it uh, sounds like just an, an amazing night for everybody, including the fans. All right, Ron, time to get that cold drink. We'll take a seat under the learning tree. And you mentioned the question earlier. Give us a reminder on that. And who was the person who asked the question? Okay, the question was asked by a lady named Judy Douglas, and she wanted to know whose idea it was for Don Carson to wear a black glove. And when I saw this question and I, and I knew what this studcast was going to be about, this was like a perfect question. I mean, like, wow. So this one is a pretty simple answer, answer really. You know, uh, let's start with my history with Don Carson. Carson and I went back as far as my very first professional match was against Don Carson and Dick Dunn in Arkansas with my father as a partner. Now, I was still in college at this point. Carson worked in Florida in the early 1970s, and I was there at that same time, had lots of matches with Don Carson in different cities, major cities in Florida. In 1973, Carson and Dunn were the tag team champions in Australia, uh, the same three months that I spent there. Uh, and I worked with them quite a bit in Australia. In 1975, Carson called me and he asked if I had a spot for him. I just started my territory in 1974, just a few months earlier. Don said, uh, Ron, I'm looking for a spot. Uh, could you use me in your territory? Well, gosh, I had all that great history with him. I knew he was a top talent, and I felt really lucky to get that call, to be honest with you. So when I told him I wanted him to come in, he asked if I would consider a new gimmick that had probably never been used before. And that's where the black glove came from. To answer the lady's question, uh, Don Carson says, uh, I got this new gimmick, Ron. I, I want I want to wear a black glove. I want to say I got a bad hand. But we talked about it. We talked about all the possibilities that this black glove had. And I told him uh, that the only thing I really wanted him to do is I said, Don, I want you to find the glove, but I want it made so that there is a real piece of metal in it. And uh, that the metal can be moved from the back of your hand down to your knuckles and that it can be shifted back and forth. And he asked me why. <laughs> he was like, 
well, why, Ron? Why do you want to do that? And I said, well, Don, what if some fan were to get that glove and then realize that there's nothing in that glove? And yeah. I said, uh, just to make sure that if any that were to ever happen, which it never did, but if it ever happened, I wanted that person and whoever that person is going to show that glove to, if a person got his glove, stole his glove, and they showed it to another hundred people, and they all said, where's the metal in it? They couldn't do that because yeah. I'd already proved that earlier in the show that day. Yeah. I loaded it and dropped it on the desk. So, you know, it was a, it was a good idea. So one thing about the glove that I never expected, I never envisioned a black glove to be called the peanut butter. <laughs> 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 and first time he ever said that, I was like, oh, Don, man, what, where did that word come from? But as time went on, I mean, that was the perfect name for that glove. <laughs> it was amazing, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, and that was Don's idea, too, just like the glove. He, he wanted to call it peanut butter. And I also never envisioned anyone being able to get as much heat as Carson got with the, something as simple and mundane as a simple welding glove. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I could mean, no take a welding glove and turn it into a monster thing. Uh, that there was a credit to Don Carson. So I hope, uh, Miss Douglas, that I answered your question. Uh, Don Carson, he came to Southeastern Wrestling and uh, and he had his own black glove, and that glove and and Don Carson's blonde hair, uh, they drew the first big record crowd Southeastern ever had, and it was in less than two years after the company started. I give a lot of credit to Don Carson. Boy, and you certainly painted an amazing picture because I can still see that dude in that blonde hair as he is strutting his way to the ring. Another great one, Ron. Congratulations. On Facebook, become friends with the legend Ron by simply liking his Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud Facebook page. At Twitter, you'll find him at, at Ron Fuller Welch. Super Studcast number 31 has been another classic. Five of the best referees of all time talk about what it was like to be the unsung heroes of the ring. Get this on tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99 for more than three hours of wrestling history. It is the best deal in wrestling. So how do you top this week? Where are we head to next week, Ron? Well, we're going to start, obviously, with another today's training. Uh, obviously, we're going to go in a different direction. We'll have on a different hat. And I'm going to continue to try to make my listeners the most knowledgeable wrestling fans in the world. And we're going to take a look at the week of August the 20th, 1976. We're going to discuss the card. We're going to talk about the great TV that promotes that card. We're going to talk about the results. We're going to talk about Terry Funk, who's going to be on TV again next week. He's going to up his game this time. He's going to start offering a bounty for any guy that can beat me or hurt me before the October 10th NWA title match. Uh, we're also going to have a special learning to question that's very interesting. Uh, another great episode. I want to welcome all of our, our, our new fans, Dave, uh, that are joining our weekly ride now. Uh, it's amazing how fast the studcast is growing. And, uh, and I want to give a big thanks, obviously, to all of you that just keep riding with us every week, man. I really, really appreciate that. And please, all of you, take care of yourselves and others, and uh, may God bless us all. 
Another great one, Ron. Congratulations once again. This is David Summers thanking you for joining us today and reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.